the entire world is at a point where we have to switch from exploitation of environment to stewardship of environment. I mean, I understand that huge segments of the population continue to try and refute it, but it's like it doesn't take a genius to look around and go that the relationship between humanity and the environment has become tenuous and um, where once humans were were completely trying to shelter themselves from the environment and protect themselves from it, we, the tables have been turned. We need to start to do things to protect the environment from our own activity. Hi, thank you for tuning in. This is Getting Personal with Designers. My name is Tamir Schuster from Precise, and today I'm talking to Brendan Coburn from the Brooklyn Studio of Architecture and Interiors, previously known as CWB Architects. Brendan's founded the studio back in 1995. Brendan is a University of Virginia graduate and received his Master's of Architecture from Yale University. He has been practicing architecture for over 30 years now. Brennan and the studio have won many awards during the years. Among them, the AIA Brooklyn and Queens Chapters Design Award for Merit and the AIA New York New Design Exhibit. On top of that, Brennan has recently received the AIA Highest Membership Honor as the AIA Colleague of Fellows. Let's get going. Thank you all for tuning again for this, what's going to be probably one of my most interesting conversations since we started doing it. I'm talking to Brendan Coburn, which is an honored architect. He's been, uh, has been in the field over 30 years and has been, no? It's a long time. It's, oh, it just scares you because I said 30 years? Yeah, I don't like to hear that. Okay. He's been managing his own practice for over 25 years, which is probably even scarier. Brendan, thank you for being here, and thank you for giving us this opportunity to just talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you. To me, you're so nice to see you on Wednesday morning. <laughs> it's great to be here. It's great to talk to you. And, uh, and again, friendly conversation. And I actually want to start by taking you back, if you don't mind, and just ask you, why have you decided to become an architect? I've decided probably officially to become an architect sometime around the 10th grade. Um, but I think it probably, if one is objective about it, it was probably baked into the into the to the pie from the start. My father is an architect. My mother is an interior designer. My father was an architect. My mother is an interior designer. My grandfather was an architect. There are a bunch of other architects in the family, so it it was always around. And I think probably the the important thing that happened that well, there are two there are two two or three events early on that occurred that really got my attention. One was when my parents renovated the row house that they live in, that I grew up in, which was in 1977, and it was a 1880s neo-Greek row house that had been unoccupied for 40 years, so it had all of its original details. Um, and uh, my parents bought it with the intent of, of turning it into a very modern row house, but uh, because at the time my father was a what I would consider a pretty serious brutalist and modernist architect. He was building Woodhull Hospital in, in a Greenpoint section of Brooklyn. He had previously built Boston City Hall for Colin McKinnon Wood and um, the Boston Five Cent Savings Bank also for Colin McKinnon Wood. So those were hardcore, serious, modern buildings. Um, and so there, my parents' intent would, was to do a similar sort of rip it apart and make it something else, which I think, you know, row houses, interestingly, are, are infinitely capable of doing. So that's 
that that was that was sort of things how how things started and where they seem to have been headed. Um, but I think as my father in particular and my mother to some degree as well started to take the house apart, they started to fall in love with the details of the house, the the late nineteenth century details, the the wood casings and baseboards, the plaster crowns and medallions, the proportions of the spaces, the windows, um, the stair, the woods, the mahogany stair was very beautiful. And um, and so the, their plans changed, and they decided to restore a row house rather than um, create something new. Um, and so I think when I look back at it, that was, you know, being around the construction site, sort of seeing the structural work going on was exciting. Honestly, the smell of demolition and plaster and concrete, I, I love all those things. And I think I started loving it at that point. Um, but then, uh, you know, watching my dad on weekends make plaster crowns from scratch, um, so, you know, setting up an elaborate rig in the house and, and making that work, um, was was super interesting and what was also interesting was watching him draw things at night and build things by day and uh, so I, that was an important were you involved in some way oh, i was in the fifth grade still yeah i was just watching. i actually my brother who was probably in the second grade the two of us would uh, i think we would get we would be made asked to stack wood and then periodically we could smash things with hammers uh, but we were pretty close to useless. So, uh, but we were around, you know, when we were in the house while the work was going on, seeing things getting built. And, and being a third generation architect, was there any pressure from your parents to become an architect or no, you just decided this is the path you want to go? No, my father tried to talk me out of it. My mother said, it's a terrible business. It's a terrible, it's not a great place to get rich or or anything like that, but um, but I really liked it, and um, I think it was you know it was that, and then my father took a job after building Woodhall Hospital with I M Pay and Partners, and uh, and uh, to build the Javits Center to be the supervising field architect for the Javits Center, and so I, at, when that project was going on, I was probably. It started in when I was in the eighth or ninth grade, so I was really starting to become far more aware of things. So seeing that building built through high school was eye-opening and exciting, and I loved it. And I and I would go and visit him at the construction site all the time. Um, so you grew up in this environment. Yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah, and and as you as you basically went through this path, you know, from your childhood to now, and you have a son. Will you push him towards architecture? Would you want him to practice in the architectural field? Sure, I'd be happy if he did. Um, but I, I, you know, having had the experience of my parents not pushing me or actually pushing the other way, I, I am mindful that you know I have to let him find his own path, and then it, he has to. If he decides that's what he wants to do, that's great, and then I can support that. Yeah, he has a great mentor. But right now he's working in construction for my brother, who renovates townhouses as a as a builder, as a construction manager. It seems like he's making his first steps. Yeah, I think so, and I think he's got a feel for it. So, but it's a long it's a long path. So <laughs> it is. It is. Were your basically your father, your mother? Were those the people you looked up to um, when you started 
your path as an architect or you had other visionaries in mind? I think as a kid, well, once I started to be aware of such things, I was, I was uh, pretty riveted by what my dad did. And then we had tenants, a couple living in my parents' apartment, and he was an architect. In fact, he, his name is Tom Baker, and he's the guy who um, got convinced IMPA to hire my father to build the Javits Center. Um, and, and Tom and his wife, Carol, fed me one of two dinners I ate every day through high school as a growing boy. Um, and he and I and my dad would sit in the backyard and talk about architecture all the time. And it would be really me just listening to the two of them talk and tell stories. And they were both very nuts and bolts architects. Tom Baker is a sort of brilliant project architect who understands the relationship between the drawings and the built building. And he is the person who puts together the drawings for somebody to go and build. And my father is the architect who sees to it that the building is built according to the drawings. And they are both architects who operate at the sort of highest end, the most complex end of the world of construction. So, so they would, they were, they were the, you know, uh, Tom ran the team in the, in the office at I Pace office for the Chavit Center, and my dad ran the field team. And that, you know, that, so I got to see that relationship and I got to hear all about their bosses who were Ian Pay and Jim Freed and uh, Warner Wandelmeyer, and those were all fantastic stories. And, and, and you know, I mean, you think about the analogy, the right word, the, um, you know, the, the cobbler. Cobbler has no shoes, or you go into the family business and you, you know, you're you're, you're going to have advantages because you've grown up in this sort of shop. So I think that was super, it was super effective way to learn about architecture and 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 the business of architecture and the pitfalls of architecture and the practice of architecture. And so that was a uh, that was good. But I think as far as sort of architectural heroes go at the time. Um, I, they probably were the same heroes as my parents, and my mom was a very sort of strong observer of architecture. And they were they were people like um, Lou Kahn and H. H. Richardson and and uh, Kim Mead White, because those were people whose buildings were available for us to see and go and visit. And so early on, I was aware of those specific architects. It's funny, like somebody like Frank Lloyd Wright, because I was less aware of even though the Guggenheim was in New York, but it was sort of like not on the the family's regular circuit of buildings you go to visit. Yeah. So, how's that? Actually, I'm, I'm learning a lot today. Do you remember your first project? You first became licensed. Do you remember your first project as an architect? Um, well, when I was in college, my parents let me design a carriage house for a client named Michael Vuitton, and it was on the corner of uh, President, it's on Hoyt Street, and I think I designed it for them, with them, probably my third or fourth year in college, and um, and it was the, I, it was in Landmarks District, so it had to get a certificate of appropriateness, so that, I think that was the first thing that I really did all the drawings for. And then when it was under construction, I was with the, um, I was with on site every day with a mason who was building the shell, which was a really fantastic experience. That's pretty cool. So, 
that was the first thing of any significance I did. And then I designed a house with and for my parents in East Hampton um, while I was in grad school. And it was the one we built was one of six versions that um, you actually collaborated with your parents. Yeah. Yeah, very much. Yeah, and my and my mom is a, st- a very strong designer, and my father is a very strong technical, nuts and boltsy architect. Um, and so the design was really my mom and myself, and then the execution was my dad. And then I I, I uh, built a house. Um, I built it with my brother and a site super that we hired, and four classmates of mine from Yale who were. All um, architects were interested in building things themselves. In fact, two of them had previously been in construction. One of them has actually showed up at Yale, um, already a master carpenter. Um, and so I gathered those four guys, and we went down and built this house on East Hampton. We got it all framed the summer between second and third year in grad school. And then my brother stayed on and kept working on it through the year. And then after I graduated from Yale, um, Jimbo Uncafer and I went back that summer to hang doors and finish the house. And I sort of lived out there finishing the house through the fall of 1994 and, um, and then lucked out and got hired by a local couple to do an addition to a house in Southampton. And I thought it was going to be like a sort of crappy addition to a house project, but it turned out to be a huge renovation and doubling the size of the house. So it was, it was a 2,700-square-foot addition to a 2,500-square-foot house. Diving so, right into it. Yeah, and it was the, and we got to, you know, did the landscape plan for it as well. Um, so it was, uh, at the, uh, one of the couple was, a, um, was an avid landscaper. You know, what, what's the word? Uh, amateur landscaper, but excellent at it. Super excellent at it. And then ended up later in his professional development deciding to just go full-time into landscape design and selling products and this that and the other thing so um, he and he took his his sort of interest developed and developed and developed and it became his his profession in his life so that was um, so that was a that was a great collaboration with a client and um, let, let me take you to your hometown in one of your favorite places in the world, and it's Brooklyn. Um, being around you, you're talking a lot about Brooklyn values. What are Brooklyn values? The Brooklyn I grew up in was not great. It was the late 70s and early 80s, and New York was in pretty rough shape. And I remember as a kid feeling like things were pretty tenuous. And uh, so when I got into college, I got into the University of Virginia, I mean, I got into some other places, but none of that matters because I went to the University of Virginia, which blew my mind because it was in the country and it was beautiful. And the architecture of Thomas Jefferson's original lawn was amazing. And um, so I went to architecture school there. And the, the focus of that program was actually urbanism, architecture and urbanism, which is how, does, how do buildings aggregate and form a city or a town? We were very interested in towns because UVA is in Charlottesville, which is a, a really lovely 19th century small town um, with a with a university university town. So it's an it's an interesting place, and I think that was you know we we studied 
studied that place in Washington, D.C., and Alexandria and Richmond and Baltimore were places that were all studied as part of the, the, the coursework there. So um, what was curious was I found myself sitting in architectural history classes, landscape architectural history classes, and seeing things being cited from all over the world that were sort of stellar examples of good urbanism. And, and of course, you know, New York was constantly one of those things that we were looking at and studying. And at a place like UVA, you don't do projects in New York because it's not close. You do them in Washington, D.C., and Richmond because they are close, but you do them in those cities. But I think what was happening was I was gradually realizing um, that the place I came from was a pretty pretty exceptional version of, you know, for lack of a, a better term, and maybe it's the right term, a sort of European urbanism that is a very sort of civilizing place, which is there's, there is the, the potential to live a really good life within that kind of urban environment. And that in urban environment is one where there, things are nicely scaled. You know, it's not overbuilt, but it's not underbuilt. Um, you have buildings that sort of aggregate together to form street walls and neighborhoods, and you have parks, and you have you have um, sort of elements of buildings which are highly social in a public way, and you have elements of buildings which are more private and face gardens. The sort of the donut of the Brooklyn townhouse block, which is the inner garden core, you start to recognize that that is a lot like you know a Roman courtyard in Pompeii or or Ostia, or any of those places. Um, so you, so you know, I gradually started to realize that this was a pretty interesting place. Now I had no intention of ever coming back because really? I really, I really thought that it was over. And um, but then I came back to New York for two years of working between undergrad and grad because the the market had collapsed in '89, so there weren't any jobs anywhere else in the country. So I got a job in my dad's office at I.M. Pei's office working on JFK Airport, and I got a job at Raphael Vignoli's office working on the Tokyo International Forum. So I was in New York. I was studying architecture. New York was, I mean, that was a down moment, but the city was still improving improving, and I was sort of a young adult, so it was a different kind of place. And then I went to grad school at Yale, and, and it, I mean, Yale might as well be part of New York City in some ways, because most of the faculty is coming from New York up uh, to the to the campus for for classes and going back to work in New York City, um, there's just a, there's a really incredible, incredibly clear connection between what happens at Yale and what happens in New York and vice versa. And um, and then interestingly, you know, the Yale campus is uh, huge parts of it are designed by James Gamble Rogers, who is a New York City architect, who I, I had worked one summer in high school for the one of the descendant firms of James Gamble Rogers. So I was sort of aware of him going to Yale, but then you get completely ensconced in all of that stuff. Um, and so what I was, you know, bit by bit realizing that you know, New York's a pretty great place. And then I started to realize that not only was New York a great place, but Brooklyn in particular was very nice. And then, you know, New Haven's a weird place. There's all sorts of row houses in New Haven that look exactly like Brooklyn. And, um, that's interesting, and they're and they're sort of super cool to see in that kind of isolated, bizarre form that they exist in, in in New Haven, where they seem like little examples of a moment in time in American history. But that's just that; it's like they're they're like museum examples or something. 
Whereas in New York, row houses are just like, they make up the city. Yeah. They're fully developed, fully vetted, fully explored. A million different versions have been tried. Um, so, you know, you just realize that New York is the sort of the place where these things actually go to, to be worked at it in scale. First of all, we're, I'm, I'm glad you came back, but how does it feel changing the landscape, the same street that you grew up in? I think it's more recognizing what, uh, what an opportunity and joy it is to sort of become a steward of this environment rather than changing it. It's more like, what can we do to repair it, maintain it, add to it? And, you know, as an architect, I, you know, I love renovating row houses and sort of contributing to the repair and maintenance of those row house neighborhoods. I get upset by buildings that I think are out of scale with that sort of thing, and not in a very good way, you know, and sort of an insensitive, um, I haven't actually been to the place. You know, it's, I think the idea of place is incredibly important to me. And, I, and Brooklyn is, I think, one of the things that's so com- so compelling about Brooklyn and what has become so compelling for the world, really, about Brooklyn is its places. You know, it really feels sort of, for lack of a better word, authentic and, and real and functioning and not a bunch of artifice. And also, and it's it's and it's about the scale and the proportions and the humanity of the space and it's in the infinite adaptability of the row house form and the and the row house neighborhood and all of those sort of structures that exist in those spaces like churches and schools and courthouses and, and commercial streets and those things. And so for your design and your you know you're a big fan of uh, late let's say 19th century row houses. For your design, can you make someone coming outside of Brooklyn feeling at home? God, I hope so. That would be the effort. And I think the work we do is we're always, we're, we're thinking about things like, um, you know, it's not only our clients' program for the project. It's like, what, what are their goals and aspirations for the space, for the home? We're, think, we're, think, we're trying to balance what their needs are with, like, the public-facing facade of the building and its role in contributing to the neighborhood. And then, you know, making sure that, that they're, you know, we, we go through a lot of effort to try and understand what their aesthetic is. You know, are they on the more modern side of the ledger? Are they on the more traditional side of the ledger? And how do we design a space that's going to appeal to them, but also that is fun for us to design and produce? I, I agree with you 100%. And we all know it. it's not just the outside. It's not just the inside. It's how the outside fit in to what you just described, urbanism and how it all comes together and collaborating. You talked a lot about you know, your past, your father, your grandfather, your mom. What do you think is the role of a modern architect in today's work? Is it to change? Is it to make it better? Is it to make sure everybody's living comfortably together? What is it? A super big picture, I think, the entire world is at a point where we have to switch from exploitation of environment to stewardship of environment. And that's probably something that's been getting talked about um, a lot. A lot, but it's been probably talked about since at least the 70s and probably the 60s, but the urgency is becoming irrefutable. I mean, I understand that huge segments of the population continue to try and refute it, but it's like, 
it doesn't take a genius to look around and go that the relationship between humanity and the environment has become tenuous and um, where once humans were were completely trying to shelter themselves from the environment and protect themselves from it, we the tables have been turned. We need to start to do things to protect the environment from our own activity. So that's that's the big picture. What does that mean for a, a firm that practices in, in in a local in a region? And I think that this sort of notion of stewardship and using what you have, right? It's like why tear down a perfectly good building when you can re make it repurpose it. Yeah. You know, and that 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 whether that's a row house that's getting renovated to be used as a row house again, or a row house that's being renovated to be turned into a school, whatever, you know, use what you have. There's a lot of embodied energy there that there's no sense in wasting. Um, and then spend the money that you would spend on demolishing a building and spewing all that dust into the environment and wasting all of that fuel to, to break it down. Spend that on the interior finishes and quality of the thing. So, I mean, I think Brooklyn provides an excellent example of the opportunities of reusing all of this fantastic, you know, late 19th, early 20th century fabric that exists in the United States. I mean, you could, this, this, this would apply to any railroad town from the East Coast to the West Coast, from North to South. It's like, if you've got that, that great 19th century fabric, work with it, add to it. Um, you know, people knew how to live up until the Second World War. In a, with a better relationship with the environment than they did post-war. So yeah. that that's the modern architect needs to do that. that I, I think it's perfectly correlated with what's happening right now, and COVID is not in the rearview mirror just yet. But how do you see COVID changing the architectural world? Will we see more open spaces? Landscape is going to be a big part of it. What is it? I don't know. I think it's interesting how well the row house as a type has performed through COVID because it has, you know, for families who can afford to be living in a whole row house or even just two floors and have an indoor space and an outdoor space and have office spaces and sleeping spaces and family spaces, that sort of flexibility is fantastic. I think there are, you know, it's interesting. We've worked on apartment buildings where I think some of our clients who had those spaces if they had an outdoor outdoor environment they that made life during covid a lot easier um, i think in some ways once new york figured out how to socially distance this that and the other thing then you know parks became incredibly important and useful and well used and and, and loved even more than, than ever as a result of that so i mean i suppose things that will happen as a result of this will be expansion of outdoor spaces, one's private outdoor space so that you have some relief uh, in those situations. We were doing the preliminary design work on a large apartment building at the time COVID hit, and then that project just died because I think that sort of project is dead for the time being. But I, I did a lot of thinking on it early on where I was trying to get a deck space or a patio space or something for every single unit, and, it, and, and the relationship of that space to the interior space became more important as a result of COVID. Rather than just sort of being an adjacent space that was outdoors, it became uh, the importance of integrating that that outdoor space more into the living spaces became more pressing. In my mind. As, as your practice also doing interior design, 
I'm assuming not just the outside, but also inside in, you know, making sure that you're feeling very comfortable in your house is going to be probably moving forward and an important thing. Any thoughts about that? Well, I think new clients that we have are particularly more mindful of separation of spaces. Their home offices are no longer uh, something that they'd like to have. They're like something that needs to be thought about. And it needs to be something, a place where they can go isolate because suddenly with, you know, both working members of a family at home working at the same time, you really need to have, you need to be able to separate, you know, because uh, in the early weeks of the pandemic, when I was working at home, my wife was working at home, it was, it was not, it was not working because our house is not huge. We have an 1800 square foot house, which is lovely and nice, but my wife spends her day on the telephone or on Zoom calls. And an 1,800-square-foot house, she took over the auditory space of the house, and um, which was hard for me. Now, fortunately for me, I could ride my bike to the office, so I started coming back to the office two weeks into it. And there was nobody here, and there were two people here, and it was very felt perfectly safe and viable. So that worked out. But maybe that's another COVID thing, which is, you know, how... How do people feel about commutes now? You know, we, I was able to, throughout the pandemic, ride my bike to and from the office. No subway, no, no cars, no trains, no buses, just me and, and presumably fresh air. And, you know, who else can, you know, how, how much of that can you do? I think that's, that's going to be interesting. And we, we talked about past, talked about the modern world. I want you to guess architecture world is going to look like 25 years from now, building massive spaceships, I guess. I think one thing that'll be great in in New York in particular, and hopefully this spreads across the country, is the rooftops of all of New York will be brought to life. And they will be all gardened. There'll be green roofs and solar panels, and there'll be an enormous amount of energy uh, being generated by those solar panels and people will be occupying those spaces. All of the projects we're designing right now have either a significant solar electric production from the roof or a really nice roof deck. And, and those roof decks are becoming very elaborate. It's not just a place you go and sit and have a drink and, and look at the sky. It's, it's a fully landscaped space. And that is, you know, I, architect named Stash Zakchevsky, who's a colleague of, of ours that we've known for years and years, and a good friend of Jason Boutin, my partners, and he worked very, very hard to get a law passed in New York requiring that all roofs become either solar or green roofs starting in 2020 in residential projects. And there's like a hugely important, amazing thing. I don't know who else worked on that. I know he was instrumental in it, but whoever worked on it and made it happen, those are really important people. They really did did the city a great service. So I think that, that that'll be the most significant change is activating that space, which will you know reduce the amount of heat uh, in the city. It'll it'll increase the amount of energy being generated by houses. I mean, we're trying to design all of our row houses now where the solar production of the rooftop unit is, is offsetting a significant amount of the energy cost of the house. Um, my partner, Jason's very interested in passive houses and we are trying to bake that into more and more of our projects. Row houses are by nature 
potentially very, very energy efficient because you're only losing heat and cooling through the roof, front wall, and back wall. You're not losing it through the side. So if you're doing a gut and you do the right sort of internal insulation and air barriers, you can have an incredibly efficient building envelope. So it would be interesting to see more of those things being incorporated into, into other cities, other places um, in the country. Um, we're designing a house. We have two houses in the country right now that we're working on. One's uh, from the ground up in Connecticut, uh, in Old Greenwich, and the other is in uh, Washington, Connecticut. And in both of those projects, oh, one of them is designed with um, with a huge, one roof is tilted uh, due south and has a huge solar array on it. It's enough to, to meet all of the energy requirements of the house and two electric cars. And so we just, that is just baked into the design. The house is super insulated. It will be a very, very energy efficient house and power two cars. The project in Connecticut, which is more of renovations and adding outbuildings to a property, we're designing two of the new structures so that the roof is oriented due south so that we can have large solar arrays on that. So I think the production of electricity through solar panels on roofs to offset electrical costs, and, and the, the key to that is net metering and getting that that power into the grid and then you buy it back when you need it is, um, you know, we'll just see that more and more. And, um, and once upon a time it was hard to get, it was a difficult conversation to push clients to, um, add these features to their house. We don't seem to be having any trouble. It's like every, I, I think the sort of, uh, by and large, the, the corner has been turned on people realizing I just have to do this. Yeah. You know, I just have to put these things on the roof, and I have to insulate the building. And I have Probably going to be cost-effective also. Yeah. So, yeah. You made me feel excited about 25 years or probably 20 or even 15 from now uh, about what's going to happen, especially with the roofs in New York City. We all want that. If you could collaborate with anyone in the world as a client or by your side as a sidekick, who would it be? On an architecture project? If, if you can take any project in the world. I would love to design a residential college at a university in collaboration with a classmate of mine from undergrad named Conrad Ello, who has a firm in Boston called Odin's Ello. It would be amazing to work with him to design a, a sizable environment and landscape. I think a little bit about... Um, I have a, a classmate from Yale, uh, Mate Jones, who is a partner at Deborah Burke's office, and he just designed two residential colleges at Princeton, and they are fantastic projects. And, and so that that kind of opportunity would be fantastic. Actually, another project I would love to design would be to turn a row house block into uh, into into an entire school complex, you know, like a K through twelve school, where the where you take existing row houses and empty lots and the donut inside and you just turn it into a into an environment which operates at the same scale of the neighborhood but is uh, an educational institution that is a place where children can go from can come from their houses and apartments into an environment that feels similar in scale to their their homes and then and then gradually as they move through that environment um, become more and more acclimated to the larger world of, of institutions and and academia. I hope you're going to achieve it. Yeah. I think all of it was extremely interesting. And I want to take you to the lightning round. 
since all of it is about getting personal with you, Brendan, um, we just want to know you a little bit better. So a couple of yes, no slash short answers questions. It's been a long day. What's your go-to drink? An old-fashioned. You know that. I know that. You're an old-fashioned guy. Again, it's been a long a year, not just a day or a week. What's the perfection after it? Northern Italy. With? My wife. Preferably. My, if my son can join us, that's even better. And a few friends. Perfect answer. Yeah. Um, I know what type of music you listen to when you're working, which is classical music. But what I'm interested to know is what music you listen to when you're working out. Is it the same type of music? No, it's not. Tell me what it is. It's terrible. It's what my wife refers to as boy music. White boy music, no less. Are you listening to the Backstreet Boys? That's what you're saying? No. Okay. Probably like Def Leppard and Boston. <laughs> it's the only way I can get through a Stairmaster. <laughs> you know I find you as a person who knows his way around the basketball court. And probably the most important debate of recent years, and I want to get your thoughts on it. Who's the real GOAT? Is it Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Let's just settle it once and for all. Who's Michael Jordan? That's the right answer. You just heard it from Brendan. That's it. Um, I take your word for it. Um, final question. If Brendan wasn't an architect, Brendan would be... Uh, maybe it would be nice to be an architectural history professor. <laughs> okay. How's that? <laughs> okay. I so staying mind, in the field. I wouldn't mind being an academic. That could be. Okay. That could be nice. You do have a background in, in academic yeah. in some sort of way. So. In some sort of way. Yeah. Okay. That was great. It was super interesting. Brenda, I want to thank you. It's just been great. A lot of projects that Brendan just talked about. You'll be able to see it through our through it through the website and of course through the links um, in this podcast. Um, Brendan, thank you for taking it's the time. Thank you. Great. We'll see you and we'll hear you all soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. This time we got personal with Brendan Coburn from Brooklyn Studio of Architecture and Interiors. To learn more about Brendan and the studio's work, check out their website and Instagram. Stay tuned for future episodes of Getting Personal with Designers. Thank you.